Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And you might know us from our other podcast, Stuff to Blow Your Mind. But today you have apparently wandered into our hall of cursed inventions. <laughs> That's no, wait, it's not all cursed inventions. Not on all this cursed, show. you know. I mean, this is how some things are perfectly fine inventions. Uh, some of them make our lives better. Uh, but, you know. Or, the, or they taunt you with goods that you could almost reach. <laughs> <laughs> Robert, did you, when you were a kid, did you ever play that game. I suppose it was a game, but I took it very seriously where you really thought you could reach up through the bottom of the vending machine and get that food item from the bottom row. Uh, I do not remember trying too hard at it because it ultimately seemed like there were there were too many risks, both, both physical and social. Mm-hmm. Because either you are going to get your arm caught in there or jammed or pinched uh, there's going to be some sort of trap or fail safe, or you're just going to be seen doing it and you're going to get in trouble uh, for trying to steal from a candy machine. It always seemed like a kind of uh, humiliating Homer Simpson-esque way to die would be mm-hmm. you, you die accidentally pulling the vending machine over on top of you while you're trying to reach up and grab some Andy Cap hot fries from the bottom row. Exactly. And, you know, these are two key points, though, that we're going we're gonna to come back to again and again in this episode. In this episode, we are talking about the vending machine. A.K.A. the robot cashier. That's right. So time was, back in the olden days. Ye olden days. When you had to either buy goods directly from a human salesperson. That sounds horrible. Or you simply had to leave payment after you took off with it. And as, as far as that payment goes, prior to the invention of money, uh, which would be, which will have to be another episode for us. You'd have to leave goods there, and and you know, in exchange, some sort of a barter system. Well, that sounds difficult if you can't uh, work out what the exchange rate for what you're bringing is. So, right in either case, though, there's a human interaction, or there's some, there, there's some human judgment on what is fair. Or there's just some sort of an honor system in place. Right. Or, or a human there just to prevent you from stealing. Right. But then what about a machine that sells goods for you? Something that has become so ubiquitous now, uh, it, it's fascinating to, to think back on, on, on where the shift occurs. We get into this vending machine ch- territory. Uh, just where does such a machine come from? At what point do we cross over from machines that are ultimately little more than honor boxes, you know, honor system situations where you're just trusted to leave your money and take exactly what you paid for? And then where do we get into true mechanical sellers? Right. The honor box system is is what you would often find in, say, a church where they'll be selling prayer candles or something like that, and there's a little offering box, and it's like, you know, please put a dollar in and don't just take all the candles. Right. And, and, and yeah, the, the honor system is enforced by the, the sacred nature of the space and your obligations there. There's a supernatural security guard in that case. Right. Yeah, you don't have to worry about, uh, you know, somebody trying to reach their hand in there just make off with all the, the, the candles for the most part. But you really do have to worry about that if, say, you want to sell minor food items, snack items, and say you, you're running a concession stand at the poolside or something like right. that, and you need to run off to put some money in the parking meter or I don't know, whatever whatever the people manning those concession stands had to do when they put up the sign that said, be right back. Yeah. So, so kids are coming. They want to buy an ice cream bar or a Snickers or something like that, and the, the goods are just right there. 
do you trust the children to leave money on the counter as they should and, and take things and take only what they've actually paid for? Wouldn't it be better if you had a machine that enforced the exchange of currency for, for payout of items and didn't allow kids to sneak in extra hot fries here and there? <laughs> now, of course, the, as we're talking about honor boxes here, one of the important things to note is that uh, – you still find plenty of honor boxes uh, out on the street in the form of, uh, of newspaper uh, honor boxes. Oh, the newspaper vending machines. Yeah, you, you put your money in, and if you wanted, yes, you could take all the newspapers. That would be cumbersome. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How often does somebody want more than one newspaper, though, unless right. they're like there's an article about them in it? Right, but, but obviously you could not do the same with, say, a, um, you know, a cola machine or a chocolate machine. Mm-hmm. Now, I wonder something that we can maybe come back to in a bit because I wonder how the psychology of transaction and the psychology of consumer behavior changes when you're dealing with a machine versus with a person. Because I think back to my childhood self who, you know, I would reach my arm up in the machine and see if I could grab a whatever, a brisk tea out of the drink machine or, mm-hmm. or grab something out of the snack machine. I don't think I was ever able to do anything like that. But – I would try and I would never do that at even even if the uh, the concession stand attendant was away mm-hmm. and I could have just reached out and stolen whatever I wanted. I would never have done that at a real concession stand that was not controlled by machine-operated mechanisms. Yeah, it's a different scenario entirely. And then at the same time, it's it's ultimately not. It's still somebody's property that is for sale. Uh-huh. There are still individuals involved in this scenario, and you are uh, defrauding them. Well, it felt completely legitimate to try to reach into the machine <laughs> and steal from it in a way that it wouldn't from a place that had a human, even if they weren't there right now. Right, because you would have been uh, exploiting a design flaw, right? Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. That Maybe that makes it okay. It doesn't. To be clear, but but let's go back in time a bit. Let's let's look for the roots of the vending machine. So I was reading uh, through an excellent uh, book on the the social history of the vending machine, uh, titled "Vending Machines: An American Social History" uh, by Carrie Seagrave, and uh, it points out that the you know the first American vending machines popped up in the 1880s, but the earliest mention of what we can reasonably describe as a vending machine is attributed to uh, the Greek inventor Hero or Heron, the Alexandrian engineer of the first century CE. Okay, now Hero has tons of inventions attributed to him. Right, and uh, and the book that the, the stems from uh, is, is loaded with descriptions of strange devices. So uh, this, the 62 CE book, Pneumatica, has descriptions and uh, illustrations of various curios, uh, fountains, Temple gadgets, uh, you know, doors that open due to the, you know, some sort of movement of steam or fire or water uh, with entries like a drinking horn in which a uh, peculiarly formed siphon is fixed and uh, <laughs> water driven from the mouth of a wineskin in the hands of a satyr by means of compressed air. So a lot of curios and marvels, toys essentially. So it sounds like he designed one of those early on uh, like peeing fountains, right? Exactly, you yeah, know, which would, would, would have been technological wonders then and are still kind of technological wonders today. But uh, uh, where does the vending machine come in? Well, he describes and illustrates a coin-operated device for, for selling sacred water in Egyptian temples. Okay, so the idea is 
it's it, maybe you don't believe in the honor box system like we discussed for buying candles in a church or something. Uh, maybe you think, well, people are just going to be stealing sacred water if we don't make them pay for it. So you need a machine to enforce that transaction. Well, I don't know how much of it was because I think there is still an honor system. I mean, it's a temple, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe there's a sense of let's make it a little wondrous, you know, because a number of these devices oh, are okay. kind of like that. Like the doors open – uh, you know, as if by sacred magic, but of course it's supposedly caused by, uh, you know, some sort of heat apparatus. But but here's how this device would work. Okay. You'd insert a five drachma coin and the coin would tip a balance inside, uh, which would lift a plug and allow a small amount of water to escape and then pour into your chalice or cup or what have you. And then once the, the coin makes its way into the collection chamber, the balance returns and the plug goes back into place. Okay. So... It- Sounds like a very simple design. You've got like a lever and when the the weight of the coin hits one side of the lever, like a seesaw, it lifts the plug up and it's kind of like a toilet actually. It is very much like a modern toilet, uh, <laughs> you know, especially when you when you see the illustration. It, it basically functions like a coin-operated flush. Nice. Uh, and uh, I should also point out that uh, Saeed uh, Shakran also discusses this in his American Scientist article, Water Fountains with Special Effects from 2005. But it's still certainly benefited from uh, an honor system of sorts. So, you know, the gods are watching. So you're not going to try and cheat the machine with, a, you know, some sort of a, a coin on a string or a, some some smooth stones that are just happen to be shaped like a five drachma coin. Right, because this was not a refined system of judging what had been put into the slot. It was basically anything that could push the lever down. Right. Now – in terms of like wh- who actually invented this and whether it was actually Bill, this is a little more difficult to, to really figure out. It's certainly possible that Hero himself uh, was indeed the inventor of the device, but we don't know for sure. It might have been Tisibius, a reputed inventor of water clocks from 270 BCE, who also would have resided in Alexandria. Tisibius's water clocks are worth looking up, by the way. I, I was looking at some videos of how these things worked, and there was some ingenious design because it, it's difficult to design a consistent water clock that just keeps working the same over time because, uh, you know, your your reservoir tanks drain down. So he created th- these really smart designs with like extra reservoir tanks that would pour into your main reservoir tank and then a siphon to manage Mm -hmm. how high the water level was. It was really clever. Now, we also don't know if what Hero describes here was ever actually built or if it's just, you know, a novel design. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is the case with a lot of old technological gadgets that you see described in books. And then on top of this, some mentions of this vending machine include embellishments that are difficult to nail down or simply don't fit the timeline. But it does give us an idea of, of what some of the earliest, if not the an actual vending machine consisted of, then at least the earliest ideas of what a vending machine could be. Right. The general principle of automating a transaction without just relying on the honor system on the buyer's part. Right. And it's it's kind of a gradual evolution to get to that point. Uh, however, as, uh, as Seagrave points out, it's going to be a long time uh, after, after this, uh, this temple device uh, uh, described by a hero uh, before we actually get any real advancements in vending machine technology. 
Uh, he does point out there, there, there are some, uh, for instance, there's an uncredited 1960 New York Times article that claims, among other things, that there was a, a coin-operated pencil selling machine in 1076 China. You know, I was really holding out for that medieval European vending machine that uh, you put in a coin and dispenses a piece of the true cross. Well, I mean, there were certainly automatons throughout European history. I guess with the vending machine, especially the early days of the vending machine, you're looking very for a very particular type of automaton that does something, or, or rather not just does something, uh, you know, but actually gives some sort of good in exchange, either, you know, leaks out some sort of valuable liquid mm-hmm. or gives you a candy bar in exchange for a coin. Because you have all matter of amazing uh, automatons uh, showing up in, in European history and everything from pooping ducks to praying monks. Mm-hmm. But to what extent do you have things that are actually uh, facilitating an exchange of, of money for goods? All right, we'll take a quick break, and then when we come back, we will discuss more of the history of the vending machine. All right, we're back. So according to Seagrave, quote, nothing happened in the vending industry until the 17th century. (laughs) Uh, um, And that's when you had snuff and tobacco boxes pop up in England around 1615. And these were definitely honor system devices, not unlike uh, newspaper uh, uh, boxes. And they, but they were just filled with various tobacco products instead. So it'd be kind of like you pay for access to them, but you could take as much as you wanted. Right. Yeah. Like you, you, you pay your money, you fill your pipe and you move on. You don't fill your pockets. You just fill your pipe. And then you had uh, you, you had other instances of uh, you know, early advancements in uh, the use of vending machine technology. Uh, a couple of centuries later, 1822, English bookseller Richard Carlyle tried uh, a vending machine for books uh, in order to avoid arrest for selling certain blasphemous publications. <laughs> and uh, w- wait a minute. Okay, so he's saying like I didn't sell it. Yeah, a machine sold it. Nice. Uh, <laughs> However, he was still held responsible and one of his employees was convicted for selling blasphemous literature via the machine. Uh, Now, it's unknown if the thing was truly automatic or if this was basically another honor box system. But it is kind of one of these early examples of who is to blame when a machine sells something that is illicit. This is something that has fascinated me for a while. uh, I can think of examples, not necessarily with selling, but uh, I think about the experiment from several years back, the random darknet shopper, which was this program that people came up with where you could load it with some some budget, give it some money, and then say, go, little thing, just go out onto the dark web and buy randomly. Oh, God. So, you know, then they got in trouble because obviously it bought drugs, bought whatever kinds of illicit materials, but then they could say, well, we didn't tell it to buy drugs. We just gave it money and released it into the wild. So how can you say we did something illegal? (laughs) Now, more strides were made in the tobacco honor box uh, arena, Uh, but the next area of exploration and patent uh, in England happened to be stamps. Hmm. 1857, Simeon Denham applied for a patent for a, quote, self-acting machine for the delivery of postage and receipt stamps. But it would be another 30 years before any real headway was made in this area. Now, the first U.S. patent for a vending machine was a liquid distribution machine that actually sounds a lot like like Hero's fabulous uh, temple water distributor. What was, kind of liquid, though? Um, well, it's interesting when we start looking at the like the early uh, distribution of liquids in these machines. Like they're essentially fountains 
that are going to uh, uh, distribute uh, drinking water, such as cold drinking water, Mm -hmm. or later it's going to be things like beer. That makes sense. Now, by the early 20th century, gum and candy machines began taking off. Now, one of the machines featured in Seagrave's book is an amazingly creepy clown head. This thing is from hell. (laughs) It is this very round, oh my God, its face. It looks kind of like an oni, the Japanese oni, that kind of demon, but much worse, uh, much more kind of... It's got these creepy, sleepy eyes that are like, you know, when I wake up, I will come kill you. Well, it doesn't and help that the the coin slot is kind of protruding from one side of the forehead as yeah. if it's a devil with only one horn. Right, yes. Yeah. And yeah, an asymmetric devil. And it's got this white ring around its mouth. It's just an absolute terror. <laughs> yeah, and then you pull the gum from its teeth, of course. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, I was chewing that. Yeah. Um, I'll come to your house tonight. (laughs) Now, already at this point, there were designer concerns with the use of slugs and hairpins to cheat the machines. So the idea of a slug is what we mentioned earlier. It's like a weighted device that you'd put on a string or something and put it into the machine and activate the the coin detection without actually paying. Yeah, I mean, you get into this whole thing. Like, it's not like the machine is reading the coin. It's reading a coin-shaped piece of metal. So Mm -hmm. if you have a coin-shaped piece of metal that has no intrinsic value, then whammo, you got yourself a piece of gum, right? Right. You know, because it comes down to basically whatever kind of honor system works, you know, with a proper English pipe tobacco box or the, the or, you know, the holy water uh, for sale in the temple, uh, a clown head that spits gum at the local train station is not going to benefit from the same holy reverence, you know? Though I do wonder if they're onto something here with the clown head because This is personified. Yeah, it's Uh, looking right at you. It's anthropomorphic. Mm -hmm. And I think that could play an important role in the relationship between the buyer and the vendor. When the vendor is just like a rectangular machine that you need to put a coin in, would you be more or less likely to try to defraud that machine than you would a a machine that looks like a creepy demonic entity that could follow you home. <laughs> it's true. You know, uh, another twist on this, though, is that you also saw charitable vending machines pop up in late 19th century France, which uh, when this seems like a decent way to invoke the honor system for machines that can't really defend themselves, you know? It's like, yes, you're buying gum or what have you from a crappy machine that you could probably defraud, but the money's going to charity, so how much of a monster are you really? Well, you might be surprised. (laughs) Now, uh, speaking of uh, defrauding machines, the earliest record of a vandalized uh, machine, according to Seagrave, comes from uh, 1887 in England. Three young men were convicted for using brass discs to buy cigarettes. Then there's also an 1891 St. Louis account where a man had a coin on a string and he was using it to score cigars out of a machine. Okay. And it was creating quite a stir. People were coming around to watch him do it like he was performing some sort of uh, magic trick. And the judge in this case, he wasn't even sure if this was larceny and ended up just fining the man for disorderly conduct instead. Again, coming back to that same conundrum, how do I... How do I punish a man for uh, stealing from an inhuman entity? Yeah, is stealing from a machine really stealing? Now, another concern, of course, with all this is that today we have problems with vending machines not working properly, you know? Right. You go to, you you put in your money, you expect to get a candy bar, and it like sticks to the side, right? So obviously you had similar issues back in the day with these 
clumsier machines. I'd imagine even more often, right? Like you try to get the gum out of the clown's mouth, but instead it just kind of makes a a grinding noise. Yes. (laughs) And uh, I think one of the the more, I mean, when you look at the history of vending machines, on one hand, you see like the definite areas where people realize, yes, we're going to use these to sell candy. We're going to sell cigarettes. These are the obvious uh, uses. But what I really loved about uh, researching this was seeing the various areas uh, where they were just throwing it at everything to see what would stick. Right. There was a real flash in the pan sense to many of these applications. Stuff, some of the stuff generated attention but then didn't find a place in society. And yet you still see early versions of vending devices that we now take for granted like gasoline pumps, water pumps. <laughs> well, maybe not beer spigots, but you also uh-huh. had these beer spigots that you put money into and then you fill up your uh, your glass. I don't know. There are some pretty strange vending machines out there today and it's it's still a developing field. Yeah. Like uh, I, I'm sure you've read about like live animal vending machines, like there are live lobster vending machines oh, and wow. live crab vending machines. I, I did enjoy when I was uh, in China several years back, I got to see a wine vending machine where you put your hmm. money in. It was very high tech too. You know, it had the computer interface, but ultimately you would get an entire bottle of wine out of it. Oh, a bottle. It wasn't like a spigot of no, wine. No, not a spigot. Like it was just, it was distributing full bottles of wine. Uh-huh. Now, the 1890s also saw the birth of the slot machine. Now, not the gambling engine that would evolve from it and keep its name, but basic coin-operated machines that sold various odds and ends. So cigarettes, stationery, etc. So early on, there was a link between vending machines and gambling machines. And sometimes the blurring of that line would help you get around gambling restrictions. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of, of a whole episode, maybe it was more than one episode that we did for Stuff to Blow Your Mind about uh, the slot machine, about gambling and gam- gambling psychology and gambling devices. Yeah. And, uh, and automated gambling. Yeah. And it, there's a, I mean, there's a clear history here. That's, the, that's part of the legacy of vending machines is the gambling machine. You would not have the gambling machine without these early vending machines. You know, we often see new technologies take on a kind of chic appeal. Mm-hmm. And I do wonder sometimes if you would have seen that in early vending machines. Like when a vending machine became the new way you could buy an item in a place, like would it would people come to think that an item bought from a vending machine as opposed to bought from a human uh, selling point would be cooler, would be better? Yeah, I mean, it's the basic novelty attraction, right? Like here's this new technology, this new way of doing this thing I was going to do anyway. I think one of the the best examples of this uh, is, is the is the rise and ultimately the fall of automats. Oh, yeah. So I always think about that scene in Dark City with the yes, automat. Yes, there's a wonderful scene with an automat in Dark City. Mm-hmm. If you don't know what we're talking about and, and or you haven't seen Dark City, we're talking about a restaurant in which the walls are lined with all of these these little doors with little windows. And behind each window, you see a plate or a dish, you know, some sort of food that's prepared. And you put your coin in, and then you open that little uh, door, and then you take the plate. So it's like apple, green jello, yes. sandwich. And these were real. This was, this was something from Dark City that you can, uh, you can take to the bank. The first of these opened in Berlin in 1895. And, uh, and yeah, it was, it was true novelty because you'd be, you'd be hard-pressed to find a true automat today. But the basic concept lives on in probably – my 
uh, one of my favorite um, restaurant innovations, uh, the conveyor belt sushi restaurant. Have you been to one of these, Joe? No, I haven't. I've heard you talk about it. Oh, it's, it's marvelous. I highly recommend everyone go to one. Afterwards, you will feel cheated if uh, a human brings you your food at a restaurant as opposed to a conveyor belt that has tiny little plates with, uh, with like bubble canopies over them. So at the on the conveyor belt, how do they keep track of what food you have taken? Oh well, they have a fabulous system. At least the place that uh, that I frequent because my my child loves it, uh, and and I love it too. Is that after you're done, you have to stick the plate into a receptacle, mm. and it counts the plates. Ah. So you're charged by the plate, and you're also encouraged. There's gamification here as well. You're encouraged to insert more plates because if you hit, I want to say it's like 15 plates you get a little prize Nice. This comes out like a vending machine. So it's this wonderful uh, collision of these different vending machine concepts into one uh, food delivery system. Now, it's also worth pointing out that even though the automat went away, in many ways it lives on in, in just modern cafeterias. Oh, yeah. And ultimately, I guess it comes down to the fact that you really didn't have to have the food behind all those little locked doors. You just you, had to have it in a wrapper. You just needed to have it in some steamer trays, put up some sneeze guards, and have what? one, two humans around just to make sure you didn't do anything stupid. You can never really make sure, though, Robert. You never can. <laughs> I, I've worked in a grocery store. <laughs> I know what people do with food items. <laughs> I guess it comes down to what do the vast majority of the, uh, of, of the customers do with the food items, well, right? The vast majority of people are very nice and very well-behaved. Yeah, it's not everybody that's sticking their arm up the, uh, the cola machine or, uh, <laughs> or trying to, uh, you know, to, to cheat it with little uh, you know, discs of lead or something. Or poking uh, popsicle sticks down in there. That's one I tried. I <laughs> what was wrong with me? Why was I so into defrauding machines? You just wanted to – it was just your rage against the machine, Joe. That's, that's clearly <laughs> that, what was going on. I was, I was kind of a, a little Boy Scout in other ways. Like <laughs> I, I never would have done that to – You were a natural butlerian is what you were. I guess. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take one more break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about just the legacy of vending machine technology. All right, we're back. So, of course, vending machines still exist, right? You know, they're all over the place, and they're now fully adapted to the modern economy, many accepting credit cards and so forth. And a lot of them uh, have less cute mechanical tricks behind them. Now they're just sort of electronic, and, you know, that, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, I like it when there's an arm, when there is some sort of robotic component. Um, like there's a, a – you can still find uh, ice cream machines that do this where an, an, a little lid and a cooler will open behind glass and an arm will go down and, and grab one of the, uh, uh, the, the ice cream pops and bring it out. And I love that because there's a sense of drama to it. Yes. Will the claw be able to do it uh -huh. or will I be uh, – or, or will I have to call this 800 number on the side of the machine and inevitably talk to another automaton? Well, that is one uh, – that, that is one appeal of the machine, right? that there is an inherent delight in watching how some machines work. Most vending machines aren't really like this. They're, they're mm -hmm. not all that exciting. But these, these other ones, the things with arms, like these are coming back to the automatons of Heroes Day and the medieval well, you know, wonder devices, the philosophical toys they were sometimes called. They put on a show. Yeah, they put on a show and they made you think about what was happening. And it wasn't just a matter of, yeah, I want an ice cream and I'll pay a dollar for it. Mm -hmm. But in terms of legacy, I do want to think about how the vending machine, even the early rudimentary vending machines, 
did kind of portend something even more significant, something about the the automation of the service economy in general. Because you can, of course, point to plenty of vending machines that still exist. You can see them in airports all the time, selling headphones and stuff like that. Uh, but in a way, you can also look at, for example, online commerce mm. as an extension of the principle of the vending machine across time and space. It's shopping without the interaction with a human vendor. You make your selection from an automated display. You pay an automated cashier and then you receive your item without having to meet anybody. Yeah. What is, say, Amazon.com but the biggest vending machine of all time, right? Yeah. You can buy everything from it. But even at in-person in, in purchasing, there is – there has been a push, at least in many cases, to try to automate aspects of the of the service relationship, right? Yeah, think of grocery stores, gas pumps. I mean, basically the sort of world that was predicted in early vending machine uh, ventures is what we're living in today. We just managed to keep a few human act interactions around, uh, you know, for flavor and, and or to enforce the honor system. And, and to provide flexibility that yeah. machines don't have. The human can be there for when something goes wrong or when someone has an unusual need or request. Yeah, and to service the machines, yeah. of course. However, I have to say I'm a little amazed that one particular vending machine design didn't take off. This one is also mentioned in Seagrave's book. comes from 1934, and it's the back-of-the-movie-theater seat candy machine. That is pretty brilliant. Yeah, like but, every seat in the theater, and then you have a candy machine right on the back of your seat. Just imagine how, how perfect and perfectly annoying that would be. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would hate that because I never buy candy at the movies. Oh, anyway. I, I would I would despise it. And for that very reason, I'm surprised that it's not happening right now. I suspect that maybe the reason that didn't take off is that you want to get people out of the theater into the lobby so that they buy more. Oh, there's only right. so much you can sell through a back-of-the-seat uh, vending machine. Right. You could, by increasing the convenience of selling one popular item, actually decrease overall sales if you just, like, make it too easy to get that one popular thing without people having to be tempted by all these other less popular things. But on the other hand, some people are not going to want I, – I don't want to get up in the middle of the movie to go stand in line or even not stand in line to buy food. But they're always telling you to. Yeah, Let's but all what go if, to the what lobby. If, I know. But what if I could just buy you know, a glass of wine and some Twizzlers right there in my seat without involving any human interaction, which I clearly did not come to the movie theater for? What if you could just swipe your credit card and the ceiling would rain popcorn on you? <laughs> <laughs> well, that would work too. Hot buttered, of course. You know, Robert, picking up from this, I wonder – in fact, I was about to ask you, but I don't have to ask you because I've been to one with you. These new school restaurants that have you order through an automated touchscreen menu rather than talking to your server. Oh, yes. We encountered this at an airport, as I recall. LaGuardia. Yeah. Yeah, we were at a restaurant – every restaurant I've been to at LaGuardia in New York works like this. And what I wondered at that restaurant was, do consumers behave in a measurably different way when they're ordering or buying through a machine than when they're ordering or buying through a person? And the data says in many cases, absolutely yes. Hmm. People do behave different when they shop through machines versus when they shop through human gatekeepers. Uh, I wanted to call attention to a 2015 interview piece I read by uh, Gretchen Gavid in the Harvard Business Review with Harvard Business Professor Ryan Buell, who talks about this change in human behavior with, with automated selling versus human selling. And so 
One very common trend is in food sales. Think about like the restaurant that's got the automated ordering pad or online ordering apps. What what research has found is that people who order food through machines rather than people tend to order more food and more customized food. So, for example – Because there's no social barrier to being a a pain in the butt. Exactly. (laughs) I think that's exactly it. So Taco Bell, they had a digital app you could order through. So Mm -hmm. you didn't have to talk to a person. You just order in the app and then pick it up. And what they found was that orders were 20 percent more expensive when ordered through the app than when people had to talk to somebody to order, mostly because people picked more add-on ingredients in Mm -hmm. the app. So it's like, yeah, I want to add sour cream. I want to add whatever. Also, uh, Chili's apparently reported that more people started ordering desserts when they could order through self-service computers that were stationed at their tables. And movie theaters have reported that self-service kiosks mean people keep ordering more and more stuff. Well, I, you know, I think another aspect of this might be uh, situations where you are relying on memory while you're ordering in a, in a kind of, at times, at least for you know people like me, a high-pressure social situation. You're at the front yes. of the poke bowl line. You're trying to order your poke bowl, and you're having to, and people are looking at you. People are waiting on you, and you have to also remember all the things you just said and are saying, and also keeping in mind what you're about to order for your child or your, or your you know, or somebody else who's, you know, fetching drinks or, mm-hmm. or what have you. Like, there are a lot of moving pieces, and if you can externalize that process or part of that process onto a screen, then it's, it is a calmer situation for all involved. That's why we write our, we check things off on a sushi menu mm-hmm. as opposed to telling the uh, server. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It, there's, there's less pressure. There's less of a rush. But I think it's also very important that there's less fear of – less self-consciousness mm-hmm. uh, because I want to talk about a couple of other studies. One was a 2014 study that looked at liquor stores. And they found if a liquor store switches over to self-service, the market share of, quote, difficult-to-pronounce items increases more than 8 percent. So people buy more hard-to-pronounce liquor products if they don't have to interact with a human when they buy them. Oh, so I I won't be self-conscious about trying to order chartreuse? 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 (laughs) I think it's chartreuse. Sounds good to me, but I would be a little hesitant. I would say that that bottle, that Uh one, the one with the horse on it. Robert, have you ever done the the online pizza app ordering? (laughs) No, I haven't, but I have. It's a thing they do. Yeah. Yeah, so like uh, I know Domino's does that. I think they all do, all the big chains or maybe not all of them. Most of the big chains do that now. And pizza chains that introduce automated online ordering find that people order higher calorie meals when they order through the app. And they also order with way more special instructions, you know. So if you're somebody (laughs) who's like, I want the gluten-free dough but not as a crust. I want it chopped up and sprinkled as a topping that people are more likely to do that on the app than they are talking to somebody on the phone. Because, yeah, you don't feel like you're inconveniencing anyone with your, you know, ridiculously detailed order. Exactly. So it seems like a recurring feature is that people just might feel less self-conscious when they order through a machine than when they order through a human. 
and uh, the machine isn't going to judge what you eat or how unhealthy what you're ordering is or how complicated your special instructions are or how you pronounce things. The machine doesn't judge. There's no fear. It just takes the order mechanically. Now, of course, this isn't without downsides. In this article, Buell points out that a lot of companies also lose business from attempting to institute self-service kiosks and stuff like that uh, because – it might make customers feel like they're getting less value from the business, they're having to do too much work, or they don't have the flexibility they would when interacting with a human agent. A lot of it probably has to do with how easy these things are to interact with. But I wonder how, how much that whole thing can be extrapolated not just to – I mean most of this is focused on food. Mm -hmm. But it can be extrapolated to commerce as a whole. When you go to a vending machine, when you order something online, when you order through a little uh, iPad or something at your table, instead of talking to a human or having to look a human in the eye when you do any of this buying, purchasing behavior, how does that change how you spend your money and what choices you make with your life? And indeed, these are changes that certainly to many of the individuals, like we're not we're not even fully of aware aware of what's happening. Uh, while meanwhile, the uh, the companies that are rolling this out are, are often going to be hyper aware of what's happening. They're going to they, you know it's like McDonald's. They they know you're going to spend a dollar more, and therefore they're going to do the math that, and and figure out that this is the, the the way of the future. That you need to be ordering through the machine so you'll spend more. I absolutely understand this working like at the level I have personally experienced feeling the freedom to order things I would be embarrassed to order out loud with mm -hmm. my voice if I ordered them on an app, like ordering some kind of complicated request or request for extra stuff. And yet at the same time, like one thing that comes to mind is uh, is, uh, is really the, the domain of films. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously one can obtain any film you want pretty much, especially good films. You can get through, uh, you know, digital means and you can order a copy of it, rent it, et cetera. When you go into the right kind of video store, I guess some people might be embarrassed to ask for certain titles. But there's also a pride in asking for certain titles. Like you want – you want to be recognized for being the person that uh, that wants to watch Leviathan. You know, <laughs> like you, you want to, you do want kind of a social connection, and you want approval for participating in this transaction. And you're not going to get that from the machine. You're not going to be judged, but you're also not going to be celebrated. Well, it it just sh highlights how the social aspects of commerce are a double edged sword. Uh, sometimes. Having a person there to react to you socially and engage with you socially is going to be a limiting factor in what you would do and how much you would indulge and all that be mm -hmm. because you're afraid of judgment. And other times it will be an empowering factor or I don't know if the word is empowering. If it would be an encouraging factor, encouraging you to participate in this act of commerce because there's some kind of positive social benefit to it. And if nothing else, I just want there to be a conveyor belt, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> At least th there needs to be a sense of wonder. There needs to be uh, uh, some sort of spectacle going on, even if it's just a small one. You know, one last thing I was thinking about is uh, I I've never tried to cheat or defraud Amazon or anything mm -hmm. like that. But I wonder, like, if if my feeling from childhood is generalizable, that people for some reason, while they would never try to steal from a human or a physical brick-and-mortar store would try to reach their arm up into the vending machine. Does the same thing apply to these more modern worldwide vending machines like online commerce retailers or just normal stores that that delegate all of the selling functions to machines and apps and stuff like that? Hmm, I wonder to what extent we 
attribute Amazon with a little more agency than we than, than, that we would than we would give, say, a, you know, Coca-Cola machine. Yeah. All right. So there you have it. Uh, that is the episode of Invention for this week. Uh, we do hope that you will check out inventionpod.com. Uh, that is where you'll find uh, the existing episodes of the Invention Podcast. You'll also find links out to our social media accounts. Uh, and if you want to talk about uh, this episode inside of a Facebook group, uh, you should go to the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module because uh, that is where uh, we are known to hang out and discuss episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. But we're also happy to talk about episodes of Invention. Huge thanks, as always, to Scott Benjamin for research assistance on this show and to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. 